miss the days when there was stuff I wasn't on stage for and got to have like a breather. I'm just going to keep going and going. Well, it's good to be back with everybody. Uh, it, it is such a weird thing. I had, I had a weird, like almost kind of PTSD-esque flashback as I was taping my sermon for you guys last week where, you know, in the pandemic world, the worship team and everybody was here and there was like an empty room for the longest time. Uh, and before it was live, we were doing it on like Wednesdays and Thursdays and pre-taping services. And it just took me back. And it's just so much profoundly better to actually be able to talk to you. You may not want to hear from me, but at least one or two of you smile every once in a while. And it just makes it so much better to have everybody here and to be able to, to share the word of God together. Um, if you ask 100 people on the street, what is the greatest thing about these United States of America? Probably 90% of them would say to you the word what? Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. I didn't even have to, like, there was no hesitation there. It came right out. Did anybody here say anything other than freedom there? Because we didn't hear you if you did. Right? Freedom is the number one thing. It's the most likely answer you will get when you talk about uh, our country and, and what drives it and what makes it what it is. There, there are great countries all around this beautiful world of ours, but we, we think of the United States as the bastion of freedom and democracy. And so freedom is what in many ways defines our country. Right? And in many ways, freedom is what defines not just our country, but the world culture as well. Think of how we evaluate and judge the other nations in the world that we share. Right? We, we evaluate them by how much freedom we think they have. Right? I hate to tell you this. If you think we're the only country that has freedom, you're a little... I mean, there are others right, that have that as well. Like you can, go to, to place, you can go to Germany and experience certain degrees of freedom. Maybe not the same ways and the same laws, but like... People in Germany would not say they're not free when they go about their everyday lives, right? Versus like a North Korea, we would put them very low on the scale of, of freedom and democracy because they probably have little to none in terms of what they do with their daily lives, right? We, in a sense, when we think of freedom, it is a good thing, right? No one here would say, you know, I think we just, we, we, we just need to stop with this whole freedom thing and stop worrying about how free we are. No. Right? As a matter of fact, many of you just a few weeks ago know people you stood because either someone you knew, or you yourself, you've served, and you've known people that have died to defend the freedom of these United States. Right? And so we sing, God bless America, right? because we value and we love freedom. Now history has shown us over the years why freedom is so important. Right? Because we have millennia of experience through the books of history, and we can see what happens when the oppression of freedom strikes and things like democracy die. We've seen it in the world wars. We've seen it in oppressive regimes. We've seen it even today as we watch the news every day, what happens when freedom gets impeded. It's not a pretty picture. But I think, and this might be controversial, and so stay with me, I think perhaps it is possible that we value, and, or at least could value, freedom just a little bit too much. Stay with me. Right? If you want an example of this, here's just a passage for you. It has nothing to do with our sermon text today, but I just want you to see this, um, if this works. There we go. Here's from Ephesians 5.22. This is a part of the marriage passage. If you ever sit in premarital counseling with me, you and I will go through this passage with your, your future spouse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ also, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we're not going to unpack Ephesians 5 today. I will tell you that shortly, I do not believe that this means that women need to, like, obey the commands of their husbands at home like, like robots. Um, and if that's what you think this passage means, you should meet with me afterwards and I'll set you straight. Um, I also will tell you, if you keep reading past that verse... Husbands get a way worse deal because we're supposed to give everything up and lay our lives down for you. So, like, if you want, you know, but aside. But here's what I want to note. When you heard this passage, be very honest. You don't have to raise your hand. There's a part of you that cringed just a little bit. Especially if you're a woman in this church. Especially if you're a married woman in this church. Right? Like, there is a, there's a part of you deep down. And you may, you may say, yeah, that's, I believe that we should. But, like... It just doesn't, like, uh, it doesn't sit quite right. You're like, I don't like to submit, right? Maybe you squeeze the hand of your husband as the passage is being read out loud, and you're like, don't you listen to him anymore. <laughs> like, this ain't, we're going to go home and read the rest of Ephesians right now, and we're going to go through all the laundry list of chores, right? This doesn't mean that I'm going to go make you a sandwich by any stretch of the imagination. We're not, a, we're not a chauvinist church. We don't believe those things. But I want, I just bring this verse up because, it is a verse that is biblical. It is in scripture. But the first inclination we probably have when we hear it is, mm, I don't like that. Why? Because that verse, it gets onto your freedom. It stands in direct opposition to what you find to be freedom. It impedes your ability to live as you want to. If you have to submit to a husband or to anybody... Right? That's freedom you're giving up. I don't want to submit. I want to do as I want. Right? And so that's, that's part of the problem. When we talk about freedom, I don't know that we have a united definition of what we exactly mean by freedom. For many of us, for the world, when we say freedom, what we actually mean is personal autonomy. Right? We evaluate the level to which you and I are free based on the level to which you and I are able to do as we please. Right? The freer I am, that means the more personal autonomy I have. If I want to do something and someone, a law, a person, a church, a spouse, a family member, tells me I can't do that thing, you have restricted my freedom because you have reined in my personal autonomy and the ability for me to be who I want to be, when I want to be it, how I want to be it. And if you want to know that this is true, all you have to do is look at the political climate today. And I promise you, I am not actually going to get political. We're going to bring up some issues, but I'm not talking about the size of these issues. I just want to bring these up. Think about this. Nearly every hot debate today in the political sphere boils down to personal freedom. All right. Sexuality, right to life, Second Amendment, immigration, vaccine restrictions when it comes to movement and COVID things that we experienced a few years ago and all the debate that we had between the right and the left wing of those, right? If you wanted to, if you had to wear a mask, it was the, the, the devil telling you to, to live your life somehow, right? All of these things come down to a restriction of freedom. Those hot button topics that we have, they either restrict our freedom, you don't like a law or a way that something is going in the political sphere because it number one, restricts your freedom, or number two, it creates a freedom for others that you don't think should exist. In other words, the law of the land says this is how somebody can be, and you say, well, no, that's not how they should be. So everything, when you think about it, is about freedom. We want to have freedom to do what we want, 
and we want others to not have the freedom to do what we don't want them to do. And so the political sphere is about that and the tandem and the balance of it all. Right? And yes, scripture comes in, and we'll get to that. But it's important to understand that most of the issues in our day come under the umbrella of personal freedom. And the problem is this. When we take it to its extreme definition of personal autonomy, freedom not only can be a bad thing, it's a deeply unbiblical thing. Don't hear me say freedom is unbiblical, so the United States is un no. But taken to the extreme, we, we can only go so far with what we perceive freedom to be in the sense that we define it as a culture, as a nation, as a world today. That's important to understand. And to understand this more deeply, we're going to look to our next psalm, and that's Psalm 123. If you remember, the Psalms of Ascent that we're working through, they start at 120, they go through 134. They are, these, they are psalms that are supposed to shape God's people. They are sung on the way to Jerusalem. In our case, they prepare us on route to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth where we get to dwell with God forever and ever. And so as we move in that direction, as we, as Peterson puts, and as I just handed to you, Jaden, he says this long obedience in the same direction as we move together up the mountain towards the final destination of God coming back to restore all things and prepare ourselves. The Psalms are meant to prepare us. And this psalm's theme, as most theologians would agree, is centered around the idea of service. But not service like we were on mission trips and we're handing out cups of, of water and food to the homeless and that kind of like service and mission. But service in the sense of service to God and being servants of God and what it looks like to be servants of God. And so I would invite you to stand as we read the psalm together, as you hear me read this psalm <laughs> together. I'm getting better at the clarifying. And let's hear from the word of God as we, we stand in reverence and all of it. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. We're hitting the hang of it. All right. Five years from now when we're doing this, you just instinctively will like rise and stand. Like you'll know exactly what to do. You'll look like a Lutheran or a Catholic or an Anglican church. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be great. Don't worry, I'm not taking you there. If you left the Anglican church or Lutheran church to come here, we're not, we're not turning into it. Have no fear. A few things to note in this psalm. Number one, the context of this psalm is believed to be the people, the, the writer of the psalm in, in this idea of Babylonian captivity, right? The, the Babylonians came in and exiled God's people. They destroyed the city entirely. And as they're coming back and they're starting to rebuild, you know, we can read in places like Nehemiah as he rebuilds the wall, and they're starting to kind of pick up the pieces. All the areas outside were mocking the people of God, right? Well, that wall doesn't look like it used to. I mean, that temple compared to what used to be there, that, uh, you really think you're ever going to rebuild? So, like, if you think you're ever going to be as great as you once were, you've got another thing coming. They were jeered at and they were mocked and they were oppressed and they still found themselves under the thumb of people that were forcing them to live in ways that they didn't want to live. 
And as we continue on, God's people are lamenting. And so a lot of these psalms that they sing are about kind of that post-exile, right? There's a theme there that has them stirred by what happened, and they're calling on the Lord to, to deal with the people, so the psalmist starts this psalm, 123, the same way that a few weeks back he started 121. Right? I lift my eyes, but this time it's different. Right? 121 was what? I lift my eyes up to, the, to, to where? To the hills. Where does my help come from? Right? And then he answers this question. This time we don't have a question. He knows. I lift my eyes up to where? To, to God. Enthroned where? Yeah. There's no question. He lifts his eyes to heaven, specifically to the one who is sitting on the throne there. There's kingly language being used. Right? We've progressed from 120 to 123 to where God's people are starting to internalize this idea of when struggle happens, when mercy is required, when things go awry, when they need guidance and love and care. Their eyes immediately and instinctively go up to the heavens. Not a hill looking for a savior, but to the heavens where they know God sits on the throne. Right? And the Psalms just get increasingly more clear about who God is as they continue to sing verse after verse, chapter after chapter, as they move up the mountain towards Jerusalem. What is the aim of the psalmist in this whole thing, in 123? The short answer is this, mercy. The psalmist is seeking mercy. The word mercy is so frequent. Right? Our eyes look to you till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy upon us. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease the contempt of the proud. There's this begging for mercy. And they're tying it to the contempt of those who are scorning them. They're saying, God, please deal with these people. They're not right. They're moving us in directions we shouldn't be moved. We need to deal with these people. Lord, have mercy on us, please. We have so long sat under the oppression of, of these. Please sit under us. And so they beg for mercy. But the thing that's important is to note the context and the way in which they beg for mercy. What's the posture of the psalmist? Is he saying, oh God, you have oppressed us for so long. It's time for us to rise again. To be the free people of God. To do as we please. To be kings upon this earth. Have mercy on us and crush. No. Right? The people of God enslaved under the Babylonians captive under the Babylonians, suffering under them, under the harshness of them as their masters. They have lived a life of slavery and captivity for years and years and years. What do they say in the psalm? Let's look at it one more time. Verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of, maidservants looks, or as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. The psalmist assumes a posture of a servant looking to the master's hand. There's literally almost slave-like imagery within the psalm. And so I, I, don't you find it odd that a people who have been oppressed under the thumb of Babylonian slavery so long are coming to God with the same posture? They're not looking for like a, a freedom from slavery they're looking for a different kind of slavery. 
They're saying, listen, we want to come to you with this exact same mindset as, we've, as we're already under, but we want, it, we want to be under you instead of under the Babylonians. And so they use this imagery of servanthood in invoking the name of the Lord. We don't want to be royals on this earth. We don't want to have a, a kingship of any kind. We don't want to have glory and fame to our name. We want to come under you. We want to be to you as servants looking for the hand of the master to extend to them. Right? The psalmist comes on his knees in a posture of complete obedience and servitude, the way a slave approaches a master. Now, that might be uncomfortable language, but that's the way that the psalmist talks about it. And you may say, well, that doesn't sound a lot like freedom. Right? Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? That Christ set us free? Why are we using imagery of slavery when we talk about being, being followers of Christ? We're supposed to be completely free of the yoke of all of these things. What's going on? Well, yes, in a sense, but it's not the way that we think of freedom. And that's the key to this text. Peterson, in the book that I just handed you, so read it. I'm going to plug it like every five minutes just to make sure it gets read. Right? He gives us a really good way that most of the modern culture thinks about the church when we think about freedom versus servanthood. And here's what he says. Too often we think of religion as a far-off, mysteriously-run bureaucracy to which we apply for assistance when we feel need. We go to the local branch office and we direct the clerk, sometimes called a pastor, uh, to fill out our order form for God. And then we go home and we wait for God to be delivered to us according to the specifications that we have set down. But that is not the way it works. And if we thought about it for two consecutive minutes, we wouldn't want it to work that way. If God is God at all, he must know more about our needs than we do. If God is God at all, he must be more in touch with the reality of our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies than we are. If God is God at all, he must have more comprehensive grasp of the interrelations in our families and communities and nations that we do. Peterson hits something really important on the head here. What does true freedom even look like? We tout ourselves as this nation of freedom. But if you ask yourselves, if you could truly have autonomy in your own life, just imagine for a second, you truly could be the most free. You could do whatever you wanted whenever you wanted it. Is that actually true freedom? Is that really what true freedom is? Let's say you achieve it. Every law of the land turns the way you want it to turn. Every person you want to elect is the one who gets elected. Every rule in school or at workplace, in your handbooks, goes your way. It lets you do whatever you want, whenever you want it. Do, do we really actually believe that that will lead ultimately to the greatest sense of freedom? Will we find joy and contentness with life? No, we can't. It's impossible. And the simple reason is because we're all together. And your freedom probably will impede in some ways on my freedom. I mean, what if you really anger me and the most freeing thing to me would just be to come down there and just, like, deck you once? That wouldn't be very free for you, would it? And so there's a natural limitation to what we think of as freedom and what true freedom actually looks like. And Peterson nails it. If God knows more about your needs than you do, is more in touch with the emotions of you than you are, knows more about your body and how it's made than you do, 
if God has more comprehensive of a grasp on the interrelations of family and community and nations, if he understands the way that all these things work at a far higher level than you do, isn't our autonomous way, is it really the most free? Or could it be that his way, in his infinite knowledge and understanding of everything about you, how you're made, and the people and the area that you live and the communities and the nations and the world and the universe and how it's made, could it be that his way, as opposed to your way, is actually more free? And that for us to align ourselves with that way is genuinely more freedom. Because he knows how we are made and what we're made for more than we do. Right? This is the proclamation of the psalm. In the midst of begging for mercy because the people are enslaved to bad masters, they are using imagery of enslavement to God as their master. And why on earth would they do it? It seems so counterintuitive. Peterson, just a few pages later, gives it again. The Christian, this might be the, one of the most important pieces of this whole thing, the Christian is a person who recognizes that our real problem isn't achieving freedom, but in learning service under a better master. Christian realizes that every relationship that excludes God becomes oppressive. Recognizing and realizing that, we urgently want to live under the mastery of God. We're all slaves. There's no such thing as freedom the way the world defines it. I, I can tell you, it doesn't exist. You can seek it in legislation. You can seek it in personal autonomy. You can seek it in storing up for yourselves treasures on earth so that someday when you retire, you can do whatever you want for as long as you want. None of those things will find freedom. You are going to be enslaved to all of those things. If you're not enslaved to God, you're enslaved to sin in the world. You are slaves. You will never not be slaves. The question is this. What master are you going to serve? As the Church of Christ, we recognize that if you think you're not enslaved, it just means that you're enslaved to sin. And we don't want to be enslaved to sin. We don't want to be enslaved to this world and the tired, weary pursuits and the vanity of it all. That's not free. No, we as the church, at least in this church, we acknowledge that we have found a better master than ourselves. We have. We have found a better master. He loves us. He wants us to flourish. He wants to use us for his glory and to love us and to care for us and to give us our best, not to chew us up and spit us out in some way. And so when we line ourselves after him, he flourishes us. He wants in every way what is best for us, even beyond what we can understand or imagine. And he sits in heaven on the throne with way more knowledge about you that you could ever have. Well, I feel this way. You don't know yourself as well as God knows you. He's the manufacturer. You want the manual? It's in the pews in front of you. Pick it up. There's an index in there. It's helpful. Right. So that's what we're to be about as a church. We're not a bureaucratic Jesus dispensary here. I know that seems silly in the minds of some but we don't ever say that out loud, but sometimes we kind of act like it as a church, don't we? We kind of act like this is a dispensary for Jesus. We come here, we get our fill, we get fed, we get warm and encouraged, and then we go out and we do whatever it is that we do. And we keep coming back because we feel like we should. Right? No, we're the bride of Jesus Christ. 
the son of the living God, and we are his servants. And that's what this church lives for. We as this church and its leaders and its people are a people who recognize there is a better master out there and we are subservient to him. And we willingly, not only willingly, but with joy in our hearts and smiles on our faces, put ourselves under the servanthood of Jesus Christ, of God Almighty. And that's a hard thing to do because every part of the sin in us just keeps saying, yeah, but I know better. I want to live this way. This is what I think is right. This is so much better. You don't understand, God. That's the way it was a thousand years ago, but not today. Right? All of these things we keep throwing just don't apply. And we as a church are not going to live that way. If you are going to be here in these pews day in and day out, we're going to learn that we are servants of Christ. And so if you're looking for a church where you can come and you can feel warm and fuzzy but never be challenged, shaped, or corrected, this is not your church. I'm really sorry it's not the church for you. If you're looking for a church where no one would ever dare challenge you or call you out for your sin because it might offend you a little bit, this is not the church for you. I'm sorry. If you're looking for a church where no one is ever going to ask you to get your hands dirty by rolling up your sleeves and getting involved in ministry and witness to the world because you'd rather just kind of sit in the pew and warm it, this is not the church for you. If you're looking for a church where you can find just the right programs to suit your family, at whatever stage of life it is, whether you have newborns or college kids, whatever, if that's what you're looking for so that the church can meet your family's earthly needs and you can consume but never invest, this is not the church for you. If you're looking for a church, finally, to suit your cocktail of theology that you have somehow come up with in your brilliance and study over the years and your logic and feelings, and you want, us, you want to be able to come here and have us serve that back to you so that you might feel good, this is not the church for you. But if you, if you're looking, honestly, earnestly looking for a deep and a loving community that cares way more about your holiness, your sanctification, your growth, and your soul than your feelings, welcome home. This is your place. There's a seat for you. We'll put your name on it if you want. We won't actually do that. If you're looking for a church that cares way more about God's preferences for how we worship him than your own preferences for how worship goes, welcome. This is your church. Have a seat. There's a place for you. If you're looking for a church that cares about your heart and couldn't care less about the clothes that you wear when you walk into the store, welcome home. This is your church. We've got a seat saved for you. If you're after a place where you can come when you're tired, when you're at the end of your ropes and you just want to sit and find genuine love in a caring community, a cup of water, or even better, a good cup of coffee, and true belonging, welcome home. This is your church. We have a place for you. If you're looking for that church that relentlessly preaches and teaches and walks the whole counsel of God, even the ones that stand unpopular to the culture, because God doesn't care. Welcome home. This is your church. If you're looking for a place where everybody is equal, not because all of your truths are equally valid, they're not, but because we believe that we're all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy, and his truth is the only one that matters in this room. Welcome home. We have a place for you. And if you're looking for a people, for a church full of people, 
who don't have it all together, who blunder it all the time, who stumble, but who seek to live lives of radical submission and service to God because he is the better master and you believe that with your whole heart. Welcome home. This is your church. We have a seat for you. It is hard to live in submission to the kingdom. It's hard in the world that we're under where we seem to be oppressed in all kinds of small and big ways, depending on where we live, to say, yeah, we're, we're willingly submitting ourselves to a better master. We don't want to have masters. Every fiber of our being fights it because it's not what we want. Right? But if those things at the very end there describe you, if that's what you're after, if that sounds appealing, if you hear those things and you go, yeah, I want that. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I want in church. Take a seat, but don't get comfortable in it. Because the master has work for his servants. And oh boy, is it good freeing work. And we'll talk about what that work is as we continue to pursue up the mountain until the new Jerusalem comes. Right? And we just get to worship him forever. And live with him as our master. We long for the day when the sin gets removed entirely, when we're not under the weight of it, when we actually will experience true freedom. And I can tell you this, I love this country. I love the freedom that it stands for. I love those that defend it and respect those that defend it. But I'll tell you this, the freedom that you will experience when you enter the rest of God at the end, when you breathe your last, it will make the freedom that we talk about today pale. It'll be nothing but dirty rags. Can you even imagine what that level of true, genuine freedom and submission to Christ could feel and look like? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the embodiment of true freedom. Lord, we ask for forgiveness when we seek it on our own terms. When we, as Peterson puts it, bureaucratically kind of shop for you. We try to put just the right amount of Jesus in our basket for that week. So that we can still live the way we want and do as we please. And live autonomously. Lord, forgive us of our sin and of our deception. We thank you for the writers of psalms like these who convince us of your truth, who speak to us boldly about what it means to live under the rule and reign of Christ. And Lord, we, we acknowledge here publicly with our lips and pray that you enable us with our minds to follow through, that you are our master and we are your servants. And Lord, every single moment of this week as we go forth where we don't live that, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that you would empower us to move aside the lies. The lies that tell us that you are not enough. That your ways aren't the best ways. That your thoughts aren't the best thoughts. That your truth is not the best truth. Because we feel a certain way and we want to do things on our own. Be with us as we go forth. We love you. And we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.